Welcome to Game Over Montreal. We are covering, as they say on this show, another Montreal Canadiens loss. But a hard-fought game by the Montreal Canadiens against a vastly superior opponent. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Florida Panthers are really good. And to talk about it, let's bring on my guest for tonight. The one and only, hardest working person in the industry, <laughs> Shana Goldman. How you doing, Shana? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for it's, pumping my tires off the bat. Damn. I gotta always pump your tires because I feel like you are, I, <laughs> I know from experience how hard you work to do so much analysis <laughs> in this sport and people got to pump your tires. You're amazing, Shana. But how, <laughs> how great of a way to segue into you being on the show that it ends with a too many men on the ice penalty. Oh my God. That was perfect. That was, and it was, it was not just like a too many men. That was a way too many men. Yep. Too many men everywhere you can't do that and i respect <laughs> the efforts i think i saw a tweet that was like it's uh marty st louis and cole caulfield under a trench coat i'm like yes like this is the content i crave i need i need a ton of bench miners <laughs> yes 100 percent. and i feel like if you're against the florida panthers and you're a team like the montreal canadians and you're down a goal in the last couple seconds you may as well just throw 15 guys out there and see what happens yeah, maybe they won't know. Maybe you can Why get a tie and call, and the referees will be Why like, "Why not? If you if you if you're not cheating, you're not trying, right?" Exactly. I mean, they might be too stunned to speak, right? <laughs> if you just throw out two full lines or something like that, you never know. Something crazy could happen. Why not? You can be like, "It's fine. We have six skaters on." It's like, no, you have six forwards on. It's like, it's <laughs> fine. We're like match up, add up our numbers. And we'll all balance out because the Panthers are actually worth, you know, one skater is two of us. Very imbalanced here. And it's fine. Yeah. I mean, that game, like I, I knew the Panthers were good. I haven't had a chance to watch them too much this year. And just knowing that the Canadians are much better than they have been for the rest of the year. That was like a slow motion murder. But it wasn't that bad. Like I looked at hockey vids after and at even strength, I think, uh, the model has it as 3.1 expected goals for for each team. So power plays do make an impact here for the Panthers, uh, for the Panthers in particular. But like, it really wasn't as imbalanced. Like the Canadians got to the quality areas of the ice, so that you know that de deserves commending. And the shot difference, when you look at it and you go, well, the Panthers had over 40 shots on goal, sure, but the Canadians weren't that far behind either. So like, we're not judging on our standard scale of looking at it being like, well, your team got outshot. Let's say it's you know 43 to 30. One, that's not very good. But in this case, like there is a little bit of a silver lining because you look at the opponent and you're like, well, if you're managing that, that's pretty good. And yes, you could throw in the argument. Sure. They don't have Aaron Eckblad and it's been shot on the first pair. And, you know, like their top four isn't what it should be. And there's a million other things. But at the end of the day, this is a Canadian team that's depleted after the deadline as well. So, like, they should be proud of it. Oh, 100 percent. They should be proud. I, I thought the fact that they it's been kind of the modus operandi under St. Louis is like even when they lose, they just don't go away. You know, they, they score the late goal to make to put it within one. They continue pushing all game. It's just the Panthers are so <laughs> talented. And it seemed like, yeah. especially in the first period, every shot they got looked like an absolutely deadly scoring chance. Like the pre-shot movement was there. The stuff that like isn't quite captured by 
expected goals models in the public sphere. It just like you could see just by watching the game. Yeah. Sorry to pull that out. That like that first period, <laughs> yeah. the Panthers were insane. And part of that, of course, like you said, is the fact that they were able to draw some penalties. But I think they were drawing those penalties because they were just having full shifts in the offensive zone and the Canadians were really struggling to get it out. Yeah, like that's something that you like always have to keep in mind too. Like not just if you're not if you're taking so many penalties, likely it means you don't have the puck. If you're blocking a lot of shots, you probably don't have the puck. If you're hitting a ton, you probably don't have the puck. So, you know, we need to I really wish we could have like a measure that was like effective hitting, effective blocking. Like I want to know if you hit and you came away with possession and, you know, or within two seconds, there was a change of possession. Like I want to know those numbers and it would be a ton of work, but I feel like there's so much there too, because we're talking about things like, Oh, well, they were drawing penalties. Like they were doing this while, like, I want to know what comes next. And this is just me being nitpicky here, but I just feel like it would give us like a fuller look at what's going on in a game. And in this case, like the Panthers were dominating. I would love to see like what, the Canadians did like quantify it a little bit more because like our, you know, we're biased. We're going to see a great hit or, you know, anything. We're going to be like, Oh, well, well, let's focus on that. But I want to know, like, and then you can see the raw count. I want to know like how many times they did something to change possession more than just takeaways. Like I just want to build on that a little bit more. And I feel like we could break down a team trailing a little bit differently too. Like how many times did they not have the puck and they did something stupid to try to get it back. And that's what took the penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Like battling <laughs> too hard the along terms. the boards. I, mean, yeah. I feel like that's kind of what killed Josh Anderson tonight, right? Was trying too hard to get the puck in situations where he wasn't going to get the puck. And that ended up costing him two <laughs> offensive zone penalties. And ultimately the game, uh, the game winning goal, the game that put it all away was because Josh Anderson was trying too hard to fish with his stick and got caught in somebody's skates. And I, I feel bad because like he also had two breakaways tonight, so you can't really rag on him that much. But at the same time, I feel like this game really encapsulated the highs and lows of Josh Anderson in the same way. It kind of showcased the highs and lows of Ben Sherratt because he had that assist <laughs> on the big tipping goal from Duclair. And then earlier in the second period, he was absolutely pantsed by both Paul Byron and Cole Caulfield in like a couple of shifts. So it, it's kind of fun to see a game where yeah. players who have really big highs and lows in their seasons have it in one single game and it shows you why they're maybe not con- maybe not controversial is the right word but he's uh, controversial he's controversial yeah. <laughs> he's straight up <laughs> i mean the trade return is definitely controversial yeah no i think too like there's two other interesting parts of this game in particular first of all you you have ben Trout going up against his former team if anybody's going to know how to beat him it's his teammates I, like as it should be it's the same thing as like you know if you're going against a goal you used to practice against and play against like you should know their tricks and what they're going to do and i'm sure the canadians have known Ben Trout long enough, they could look at it and be like, we anticipate he's going to do this. And sure, you could be wrong in some cases, you know, yes, he's playing in a new system, but like how much did he absorb in, you know, a hot minute? So I think that adds a little bit of intrigue to it. And for Josh Anderson too, like the Canadians just lost a great player in Lekkanen. Is there pressure maybe from someone to say, I can step up in his absence. We don't have someone that's going to be as good of a four checker. I'm going to try to take that on. And I could be completely wrong by this, but like, that would be my line of thinking too. Like, you know, there's going to be more departures. Do you want to be one of them? Do you want to be the player that's showcasing that you can do more? And then you're on your way out to a contender, or do you want it that you show your value and you can stay or just, you know, explore another aspect of your game. Your team's missing this quality. Let's try to bring it in. Yeah. I think the guy who in the last couple of games here, since Lekkanen has been gone, who has kind of stepped into that role and, 
for whatever reason, broadcasters have trying to made the association that he's been the guy who's been del- like sending out the pucks during the, the pregame skate, Jake Evans, but during the games as well, Jake Evans has kind of stepped into that role and in being the aggressive four checker. He got a goal tonight. I thought he was one of the Canadians that really showed uh, like excellence in this game, attacking in the offensive zone. Haven't checked the numbers on his defensive play, but I know after the first period, he was one of the Canadians with the positive differential. I thought he was really good tonight, and I thought his line, him and Rem Pitlick have something going. I'm not entirely sold on Rem Pitlick overall. I think if they can turn Pitlick and Evans into their like fourth line, I think that becomes very, very dangerous, but I'm not sure they fit as a third line. Yeah, and there's a difference there, and I think this is something like so important to you. Like, when you're retooling, rebuilding, whatever you want to call it, you're moving pieces out. Um, you're going to have players in roles they don't belong. And on a good team, they belong here. Like, it's the same thing. You look at Tampa Bay. Blake Coleman's a you know, top six on any team. So is Yanni Gord. So not so much Barkley Gaudreau. He's like, I was going to say not quite, not quite. No, no, no. You can tell the Rangers. In fact, he is not. Um, but other players, they're very good teams. And, you know, they're very good players. And they're on a deep team. They're going to have a different role. So here it's going to be the same thing. You're looking at it going, well, you know, I don't know if he's a third liner. And it's like, well, on any lineup, he probably isn't. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the strength of the team. And here he's going to get an opportunity. But as they fill in the gaps over the next couple of seasons, whoever is, you know, staying, whatever, like I imagine they'll be slotted into proper roles at that time, unless they show something. I mean, this is the time to show, Hey, we can be this game breaker. But then again, there's like a loyalty thing too. When you start talking about that, like they could be yeah. a game breaker. Do you want them to be, is it just because they were there and they went through it and they were great soldiers and sports and whatever bullshit you want to spew? Because like, we know that's the case, but no, there, there is something to that. Like he's going to be in a role he's not fit for, for a while, but as they get it together, as long as he's still there, ideally he'll get to go where he actually belongs. Yeah. And that makes sense. Uh, other person that I thought was fantastic tonight was Jake Allen. Obviously I I thought, especially in the first period, like early in the game, he really held the Canadians in it. It could have been like five to one after that first period. It it just seemed like the golden chances that the Panthers were getting. And he was absolutely on fire, not to denigrate Spencer Knight, who I thought had a really good game as well, especially that big save on uh, Ram Pitlick. But I thought Jake Allen was probably the best overall player for the Canadians tonight. Yeah, he was the difference maker. And I think it's like it's so encouraging for him coming back from injury to like to come into the net and play this important role, because no matter what, he was filling shoes that he could never fill when he came into it this season. And everything was pretty terrible the entire first half of the year for him. And it's out of his hands. So the vibes are better. And now, like, he's in net and has a chance to play his game and you know, with a team that can have a little more offensive pop, even if they're not good defensively, if you could just have offensive support, that that's ideal. I feel like for a goaltender too, trying to prove themselves, maybe the ideal environment isn't this defensively stalwart team because, you know, you're going to have like what'll look like easy saves and easy nights. But if you are playing behind a defensive disaster, let's say, and your team get gets you goals and you can make saves and keep them in the game, like you're going to get that standout, you know, recognition as well. So you know, like they obviously allowed quite a few shots and quite a few quality chances. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about him looking good, even though he allowed a couple goals. Like that's a win for him, I think. Yeah, 100 percent. I know there's a lot of goalies that are like that. They would rather face 40 shots than 20. Right. Yeah, because it depends on your movement, right? Like if you're going to overdo your movement, like 
I'm trying to think Andre Pavlik, I think it was, was someone who like didn't do well in those like low traffic, low offense games. But when he was busier, he would make these crazy saves and he was going all over the place and it worked for him. Otherwise he was overdoing it and then getting back to position slowly. it's always funny to see the different goalies that excel in different systems. Right. And you know, there's like the Marty Brodeurs who would like to have like 17 shots and can keep the focus. And then there's guys that just, they would rather get 50 than 17. Um, Other than that for the game, I feel like the the game, as much as it was a fun game to watch and it was like high, high intensity. I don't know if there's that much to break down overall. I do. We're going to talk about Jeff Gordon as well on this show because Shana, Obviously, as someone who's covered the Rangers for a long time, (laughs) has a lot of experience with Jeff Gordon. But I want to talk about something else first that kind of lit things up online up in Canada watching this on TSN. Because Pierre Lebrun reported that the GMs at their little meetings have talked about implementing a salary cap in the playoffs. And I don't know about you, Shayna, but I think this is the dumbest overreaction I've seen in a very long time from this league. And it seems like they are constantly determined make everything less fun i want to know what team put them over like this is my question wasn't chicago when it was patrick kane doesn't seem to have been nikita kucherov is it vegas and like they have a point to an extent with vegas but maybe the rule should be you don't have as much long-term ir space or maybe it's providing better documentation of injuries maybe that's the answer you know maybe that that's it right there because i think you should have space for long-term injury reserve not for nothing let's talk about hockey is for four seconds this is a sport where skaters skate around with knives on their boots on this slippery surface called ice it is very easy to fall it is very hard if you hit it players are slamming their bodies into you And you just have to take it. And then there's pucks being flown around that could be, you know, 100 miles per hour. Injuries are going to happen all different ways. So we can't pretend that we can't we can't not prepare for that. Right. Like you need to have some sort of cushion if you lose players to, I don't know, concussions, a sport that this, you know, an injury the sport deals with quite a bit and doesn't handle well um, or broken legs or anything like that. And you yeah. should get some cap space back. You should not be screwed because your player got hurt. It's not fair. You shouldn't get all of it back. Sure. And you don't, but like for the playoffs, it makes sense. You don't have it. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. There's a loophole. If you have an issue, I would say get better medical records. Maybe make them see a specialist that you provide to ensure the injury is real. I don't know. Well, and also I feel like if a team wants to have their star player, get surgery during the season to repair something and risk missing the playoffs while that play, uh, while that player is out the whole time and then risk them being rusty to start the playoffs. That's their prerogative to take that gamble. And yeah, Tampa Bay was one of the only teams that could do that successfully. But like, I feel like the only gripe with Vegas is that they play so fast and loose with the cap in general and with the way that they treat their players and communicate with their players that it just looks maybe a lot worse than it is. And like, they chose to acquire Jack Eichel this season, which put them over the cap to begin with. Like, yeah, if all their players were healthy, they'd be way over the cap, right? It's not the same situation as Tampa. So it's also, Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go for it. Also. It's not like when they activated Eichel, 
It was right before that it was announced Mark Stone was out. It wasn't when they acquired Eichel. And there's a big difference there. They knew they were going to have to do something. And yes, all the fingers were being pointed at Riley Smith or, you know, maybe it was going to be Dadanoff. They knew, though, they'd have to do something. If you want to complain about a situation for that reason, that when they made the trade and by the time that, you know, obviously Eichel was out, so he was the injured player coming in, but they knew what they were getting into. That's a, a lot different. And like you said, there's a risk with Tampa. Nikita Kucherov didn't look good to start the playoffs. Yes, yeah. he had points because he was very stationary on the power play. The second he had to skate, he looked like shit. There was nothing, no two ways about it. Like his skating was bad. He was falling behind in plays and he happened to keep collecting points because he was good on the power play. Yeah, he was he was all instinct and skill, right? And he yeah. wasn't really moving that much. I got I, I got a lot of shit last year when I pointed that out, and people were like, "What? Look at his point production." I was like, "Are we really doing this song and dance again?" But yeah, I totally agree. I thought that he was not very good, at least in the first round. It took a little while for him to catch his breath, and like the point production is always going to be there because their power play was operating. I think in that first series against the Panthers, it was like forty five percent or something like that. It was it was, it was ridiculous. It was we, the main reason they won the series. Yeah, we did. So Joe Smith and I did a story on their power play and it was funny. Like we were working on the timing and every game they kept scoring that we're like, this is fine. We can do this whenever we feel like it. And it to watch a power play like that and be like, I'm just like, literally, I love when I get these topics brought to me like, oh, do you want to do a story on that? Like, yeah, I will sit here and watch all of their power plays. Absolutely. First of all, they're not going to last two minutes. So that's even yep. shorter. That's less work for me. Second of all, of course I want to watch that. Look at the shit I have been watching for the last couple of years. Like I didn't get to watch good players for a while. Like, yeah, I want to do that. That power play is sick. So yeah, he was, you know, raking up points and he's a reason why it was so good too. But like, that you still have even strength play to worry about. And there was a lot of it and he wasn't very good at first. Yep. hundred percent. And like the whole, the thing that I, get stuck on with the idea of a playoff salary cap. There's like two factors for me. First of all, the players aren't paid, right? You get paid when you win rounds, but it's not their salaries. It's like an even distribution across team. So they're not actually operating under the salary cap for a reason. And second of all, if you were to make it as if they are, say that you're a team that on day one of the season, you lost your star player, $8 million player. And you acquired somebody else because you knew that you weren't going to make the playoffs without that player. And that player comes back midway through the first round. You're up three to nothing against a rival team in the series. This player gets activated off of LTIR because you can't keep them on LTIR once they're healthy. The NHL will not allow that. They're automatically activated. You're now over the salary cap. You have no recourse to move salary. You can't just trade a guy in the playoffs away like i mean yeah, theoretically you, you could on waivers you're done yeah like so you're now gonna forfeit in the playoffs because that's the rule yeah because you're over the salary cap that's what how we want to entertain yeah how do you know when a player gets injured in october november december what their timeline exact timeline is going to be there are times that players have setbacks it happens all the time there are times that players are not comfortable coming back. You could look at Byron right now in Colorado. He came back from injury and he actually wasn't ready to go. Like it's unpredictable. And you're dealing with so many injuries. Like not every single case is exactly the same. Yep. And it, it just, look, if the NHL knows how to do anything, it's to be motivated by the exact wrong things. and make a, reac a reactionary decision on how to 
fix it, which actually fucks everything up so much more instead of looking at the problems that they actually have and doing something about it. So cool. Enjoy your busy work at the general manager meetings to talk about something you shouldn't be talking about when there's 5,000 other things that you could be doing, but you know, sure. Let this be the one because you're all upset that you didn't figure out the loophole sooner, or you don't like that. You're going to have to go up against the avalanche who are able to absorb more players because they have a player on long-term IR and the same with Aaron Ekblad in Florida. Like, I get it. It sucks. But like we saw the Ekblad injury. It's reportedly a high ankle sprain. I believe we know the timeline for that. Could he come back in three weeks? Probably. Should he? No, he would screw it up more. This is going to force him to sit and fully heal. But guess what? He's still injured. Even if he could come back, like he's still injured. He's still out of the lineup for a reason. Like, you know, it's tough to say Gabriel Landeskog is having surgery right now. Do you want to, you want to go check on him? Like, I don't know. He's out yeah, of the lineup. It's, it's a risk, but that opens up like a whole new door of sometimes players come back when maybe they shouldn't. Right. And yep. you, you look at, like, I, I saw a lot of comments. They're like, Oh yeah. Kucherov was skating for two months before the playoffs. I don't remember it being that long. I feel like it was a I don't few think it was weeks. That long. Yeah, but the point is like just because he was skating does not mean he was capable of playing in an NHL hockey game. Carey Price is skating right now. Get on the ice in a minute, please. Please yeah. have hip surgery. Hop on the ice within a week. Let me know how you feel. Like Carey Price is skating right now. He's not playing for a reason. You know, <laughs> it, you know they're circumventing the cap because they think they're going to make the playoffs. Yeah, that's Carey exactly it. Make his huge return. And that's the other thing. Like I've seen, there's comments here on the stream chat uh, from our. A loyal viewer here, Thomas, saying, yeah, Kucherov wasn't very good at first, but what about a few days later when he was really good and they were way over the cap? Well, the thing is, like like we've said, they weren't over the cap because it was the playoffs, there's no cap. But at the same thing, like the Montreal Canadiens last year who made the Stanley Cup final were also over the cap. What if Jonathan Drouin got over his mental health issues in the middle of last year's playoffs and he came back? The Canadians would have been over the cap if there was a cap. So... It's not as if the Lightning were the only team to be carrying more than the $80 million cap last year. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it happened to work out for them. And if we're going to look at like who got lucky, guess what? It's the Stanley Cup winner every <laughs> single year. Gets yeah. super lucky because you have to get lucky to win the Stanley Cup. This is a league with so much parity. You yep. cannot win without like injury luck on your side and some puck luck as well. Yeah, and I think... Look, you could say like at a certain point, you'd be like, maybe teams are abusing it. Maybe this year in particular, but like Gabriel Landis Cog is still having knee surgery. That's not nothing. You don't know how he's going to be when he's returned. It is like you said, it's a huge risk. If you want to be mad at a team, be mad at Vegas and be mad at them because they acquired a player that they had to put on long-term IR because obviously he was out, but they knew they weren't going to be able to fit him when he returned. Yeah. Like, that's it right there. Maybe the answer is simply taxing them for it, you know, or abusing it, finding them something. I don't really know. Like, I'm glad I'm not a decision maker in this, but I do get why they have the finger being pointed at them. But it does seem like Mark Stone's legitimately hurt. And we did see he was in and out of the lineup before that. If this was an injury that all of a sudden Mark Stone's out of the lineup, he has been perfect all year. That's a different conversation. It That wasn't the case. And there were numerous times... He could have, you would have hoped he could have come back to better their chances sooner than later anyway. Like, that's their most important player. Now, all of a sudden, he's out. Like, he is the Vegas Golden Knights. Like, it, Mark Stone is that elite player. He's that good. He's that much of a game breaker. 
of all players to be the one to like be pointing the finger at, like, I don't know. I think that is a little bit tough. And Alec Martinez too, like they could use them. They could have used them probably before Jack Eichel came back to the lineup too. So it's, it's just tough. Like you knew one player got injured. Mark Stone had been in and out all year and not playing up to his level. So I give them a little bit of wiggle room there, but the problem stems from when they acquired Eichel without a clear plan on what to do. So yeah, like the league should deal with them, but should they punish everyone for it? Probably not unless everybody like it gets out of control, but it's not at that point yet, in my opinion. And like, especially right now, like the cap hasn't grown as we anticipated. Obviously no one saw this coming and it did. And, you know, attendance figures, you know, influence how like the growth and everything like that, like everything was saying that the cap should have gone up with the new TV deal. Like everything was on track for that and teams were operating that way. And then everything went to shit. Like of all times to be throwing the book at them, it's kind of like in this environment, when your league is not growing in revenue, like it should, because you do a horrible job at marketing it. How many people were saying they didn't know when the outdoor games were like, there's so many (laughs) different ways. How many players do we talk about their personalities? And anytime that there is a little bit of progress, it's met with so much resistance because of the league. So right now, when everyone's, you know, belts have to be a little bit tighter and yes, that just stopped teams from signing contracts like Tucker Pullman and Derek Forward getting money and Patrick Nemeth got like all those contracts. Like we could look at it and be like, okay, but teams are also spending money in a bad way. At the end of the day, everyone's tight on salary and it's the league is at fault as well as the environment. So maybe like, let's not do this right now, unless things were that out of control and just deal with Vegas as like a single case basis before making this, this huge issue when there's so many other things going on right now that it just seems like the timing is kind of off. Maybe when there's some growth in the salary cap and things are a bit different, it'll be the right time to have this conversation. But right now it isn't hundred percent. And I feel like you could punish sketchy use of LTIR in season before yep. you'd have to bring things over to the playoffs. Like unless you're going to play, pay players their salary, like prorated per playoff game, introducing a salary cap in the playoffs just seems so crazy to me. And I'm glad you brought up the, the like bad marketing of the outdoor games. Cause like just me personally, I pay a lot of attention to hockey. Yeah. The only reason I knew there were outdoor games this year is because of the jerseys. <laughs> like I, I saw do start the conversation. They do. Like th- yeah. there was literally no advertising that got no. to me. And yes. you would think that all my feeds would have, at the very least on social media advertising or like see it during a hockey game that yep. advertising is going to be an outdoor game. It was maybe the week of for the one that Toronto played in. Yep. And the Nashville one, I only saw it cause like Eric young bought the Jersey and I was like, that is the <laughs> ugliest Jersey I've ever seen. How, why would you buy that? He was like, I love it. Unironically it character. It had character. I like how bold the colors were. I hate that. It said Smashville and like the way the font was lined up was a little bit odd. But no, you're right. So it's, the, the jerseys were like leading the way. Look, we know there's going to be winter classic um, stadium series. We assume heritage classic does not come around every year. So yeah, there should have been more marketing for it. Um, think of how much marketing went into the Maple Leafs reversible Jersey in such a short time. Everybody was talking about it. We all knew about it and we knew it was the next gen night. We knew what it was about. Like there's so much good with that. And that's a funny thing too, because how many complaints were there about the Jersey being ugly or they didn't like the other side or they didn't like that. It was Justin Bieber involved with it. When at the end of the day, if Justin Bieber posts a Maple Leafs Jersey on Instagram, people want to wear a Maple Leafs Jersey. Like think of Rihanna walking around in the Ottawa senators Jersey. Fuck. I wanted an Ottawa senators Jersey. If Rihanna looked that good in it, like it's so good for the game. It reaches 
different stands because, you know, we don't need to be advertised to as much. We need to be informed of when things are going on, but they don't need to sell hockey to us. We're watching it. We're here. We're doing it. Um, I know this is something like uh, they were talking about it on 32 Thoughts and Jeff Myrick was like hammering it home. Like you don't need to advertise to me. You need yeah. to advertise to the next generation. They're, you know, the people who are going to be gruff and disliking this are probably the ones that are hockey lifers anyway. And, you know, it's a different generation of fans. You need to bring in new fans and you need to be creative in how you do it. And it's not bringing in some people from TikTok who nobody knows who they are and then they don't even use them and they don't vet them properly. Like, that's not it. But if you can have Justin Bieber designing a der- jersey, that's huge. Fuck, if you could have Taylor Swift design a Nashville Predators jersey, do you know how many people are going to be wearing it? And maybe she doesn't want to do it. It's different because Justin Bieber is a hockey fan. But there's so many more opportunities, whether it's crossovers with other sports or looking to famous people who happen to be at games and are fans or, I don't know, bands are playing at their arena and giving them the jerseys. There's so many little things you could do along the way just to market it better to new fans and then also to market it better to us, you know, as well. Sure, like, why not? You're the National Hockey League with a huge budget for marketing. I'm sure you could figure something out. And instead, it's like, we're going to have outdoor games and not tell anybody. And, oh, we're going to bring women into hockey. We want women as fans, but we don't give a shit about anything going on and, you know, anything. And here's a couple of things of merch with pink on it and take some sequins and like that. So, yeah, it, it, there's so many things that are going wrong with the league. And this is what they're going to, you know, pinpoint that it's like going. Awesome. Yeah. Growing the game. Way to and go. Speaking of famous people designing jerseys, there is a comment here. Zendaya and the Rangers jersey made me want to get one. Let Zendaya design yep. a Rangers jersey or Margot yep. Robbie, who's at Rangers games like relatively often. There's... Yep. Give them the reins. Let them do something creative and cool. And besides, if any team could use a, a new jersey. <laughs> See, I, I do like, you know, obviously I'm biased here. I do like the Ranger jerseys. I think that there's um they're very classic and I like them. But the reverse retro, like, I don't like the um, Liberty jerseys much. Like, let their alternate be designed by, you know, with input from someone. And it can even be a former player. It could be like a Henrik Lundqvist, you know, giving his input. Look at the Devils with PK Subban helping with their Black History Month jerseys. Like, he did a great job with that. Um, sometimes you shouldn't give the reins to former players. Look at the Jersey jersey with Martin Broder. Like, that's, you know. <laughs> but, you know, getting input. You don't have to let one person completely take the reins, but get input from someone or have a collaboration with someone um, and just keep it like modern without it being like, how do you fellow kids? Like there's so many ways you could do this and it just takes getting some new voices in there. But instead, let's talk about taking away, let's add a salary cap. And yeah, it's was it Quinton Byfield who helped design the LA Kings Black yes. History Month jersey as well? Yes, that one was really was cool as well. I feel like oh, yeah. the NHL, one thing I'd like to see, because I feel like they had a lot of cool designs this year for both uh, Black History Month and I think their, their pride jerseys as well. Yep. Make real jerseys, not practice yep. jerseys. I and feel like that just... really, like it undersells what they could have been. And sell them. Not yes. just auctioning them one per player. Like, you cannot afford that. I'm sorry. that The average person can't afford that. And I'm not saying don't do that as well. Absolutely do a signed version. You know, auction that off. You can make money. But you could make a shit ton of money just doing a pride t-shirt with the actual design that's used and not just the team logo with rainbow splattered on it. Do those as well. The stitched hats and stuff, they're super nice. Have the actual logo and put that on a shirt proceeds going to wherever i know the devils did that with the the suban t-shirt 
I know the Canucks have their pride stuff on their actual team store, but not on the NHL.com store. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's really not that hard to put more things out there, put more jerseys out there, put the pride jerseys out there, put the, um, lunar new year ones out there for sale. Uh, do a hat, do a pin, do a puff. There's a million things you could do. And instead it's like, here, you can auction this off and try to win it. And otherwise you get shit. Yeah. And correction from the comment section. It was Akil Thomas who helped design the LA Kings. Oh, not, okay. Not Byfield. That's so even cooler though. Cause if that's a player from their AHL, that's right. It, it's even cooler that they like looked to a player from their system, not even on the NHL team to do that. I think that like, I don't know, that speaks volumes too. If they knew that was like an interest of him or something like that to ask him to do it. Like you would imagine it's a veteran player. That's a young voice. Look at that. A young voice in cool. the future of the Kings designing something wow look at the marketing right there we all loved it and then none of us could buy anything with it yeah sarah y from the comment section says the canucks jerseys were six hundred dollars yep that's that's pretty that canadian like, dollars that's like yeah, probably money, so it's cheaper so like for a hundred bucks down american here. but yeah i feel like the canucks had like some fire jerseys this year like their lunar new year jersey was fantastic yep. and they the Veg vegas it. golden knights had a good lunar new year jersey I think it was two years ago. Yeah, they had a purple one too for something that was really cool. Because like I do think the Vegas, like I like Vegas's jerseys, but like I'm gonna hold my ground that I think the red stripe would look even better if it were purple. Um, but they did have a purple practice jersey for something, and it was really cool. Was it maybe hockey fights cancer? No, it was. Mm, it's gonna bother me, but it was like a, a royal purple. So okay. someone who's watching, please find out what it was. I don't remember what it was for, but I remember being sick. All right. Uh, we'll probably cut the Jersey talk now because I feel like we, we could go on forever for the <laughs> Jersey talk. <laughs> Let's get to Jeff Gordon because okay. I think that is a, a point of interest for many, many Canadians fans right now because obviously this is a, a situation where the Canadians are weirdly the happiest fan base in the NHL right now because they got to have their candy last year. They got to the go to the Stanley cup final. They didn't win obviously, but it was a fun run. You know, Arturi Lekkonen scoring the series winning goal to send them to the Stanley cup final on Jean Baptiste day up here. The a huge moment, the city like came alive for the first time since the pandemic started essentially. And then this year, they suck. They're absolutely terrible. Worst first half of the season in the history of the team. And then in the course of that half bad season, everybody that was holding them back gets turfed and they bring in this new regime that seems to be highly progressive between Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon and everybody's super excited. They have a banger deadline bringing in a ton of assets and now everyone's just like on 11. The team's fun to watch again. And there's no real criticism to go around. Everyone's in the honeymoon period of the new management. So do you have any bad news for us? <laughs> okay, there's good and bad. So Jeff Gorton, before that they actually started rebuilding, did make a couple smart moves to help the Rangers. And the biggest one was the Mika Zibanejad trade for Derek Broussard. They saw Broussard was trending in the wrong direction. Zibanejad was trending in the right direction. Half the cap hit, a couple years younger. And they were able to flex their money a little bit and be like, hey, we'll pay a signing bonus for a second round pick. Like that worked out. They were able to take that second round pick, 
at a third round pick and get Brendan Smith as a deadline rental who they ended up extending. No, the contract didn't work out. Different circumstances at the time of the signing and the trade, it was exactly what the team needed. Um, there were missteps though. So initially it was, they were retooling on the fly. They announced this at the draft um, where they, so they announced that they were buying out Dan Girardi, correct move, that they were trading Derek Stepan, incorrect move, and moving Antti Ranta, correct move, because, you know, sell high on a backup goaltender, let them go be a starter somewhere. It's kind of been their system with Ben Waller. They could trust as a goalie coach. Um, they put the two assets together, mistake right there, because they limited the return. They took on Tony D'Angelo, which was a risk, and drafted Leah Sanderson seventh overall, who they drafted for his readiness, um, ideally to step into that you know, bottom nine center position. And I think it was closer to middle six because they had lost Oscar Lindbergh to the Vegas Golden Knights. And really it was uh, David Darnay they signed, if I remember correctly, and Mika Zibanejad. That's, that was their center depth. And they were had to run 11 forwards a lot because they just didn't have an answer. But positives from there. Um, sorry, first the rebuild move. So the Ryan McDonough trade, they, again, grouped assets. Um, they were hell-bent on getting Libor Hayek, I believe it was. Wrong move. Um, Brett Howden had a high ceiling at the time, so it was thought. So you could argue it was the right move in picks. Uh, they probably should have gotten more because that was their captain and number one defenseman. And JT Miller, who they didn't really get a chance to play at center. Um, and they moved players like Michael Grabner on expiring contracts. Right move. Good return. Um and Rick Nash, it's funny, like that, I think, was also somewhat underwhelming, um, but it worked out for them because of Ryan Lindgren, even though at the time of acquisition, he wasn't this high-end prospect. Um, he was like a very old-school defenseman, and Boston just didn't have any, like, inspiring draft picks and, uh, I'm sorry, prospects. <clears throat> so there was good and bad with that. But it did work out in their favor in some respects. And then after that, they did start swinging for skill. And that was where I think things changed a bit like the Vitaly Krasov draft pick. No, it didn't work out. But at the time they were going for his high ceiling, Kendry Miller, Nils Lundqvist. Like there were a lot of positives with that, but there was also a lot of luck. Um, Adam Fox wanted to be a ranger. Ton of luck. Yeah. That's uh, our Tony Panarin wanted to be a ranger, a ton of luck. And the interesting thing with it is too, like in every situation, you're rebuilding team. You should not be going for the Artemi Panarins. Your focus should be the Adam Foxes, these young players who aren't just 18-year-olds in your lineup, but these young players who can, um, you know, help be assets now and in the future. You know, there's a little more NHL readiness behind them. The Jacob Truba trade, you know, it was a good deal. It made sense why they wanted him. But for a lot of the players, they did overpay them. You know, Truba, they went eight by eight. They didn't need to go that high, and they did. And you could make the excuse, well, it's okay because you're overpaying a good player versus a bad player. And that's right. That was a change from years past. Um, but they did it to numerous players. Um, he had another great trade, which was a uh, Ryan Spooner for Ryan Strom. That worked out really well. It seemed like there were so many opportunities to sell high and they didn't on him. And I wonder if that's going to burn them now. Um, he hired a college coach to come in and work with the team, which was, again, the right move because Elaine Vigneault was not it. So there were a lot of pluses and minuses to it. Um, he made a couple really great trades. There were a couple of things he definitely made mistakes on. And when they focused on skill, that was great. They won the lottery twice. That was incredibly lucky. Um, but And there was an openness, it seemed, towards data, 
to an extent. I think it's greater now in Montreal. And I think that's great and wonderful because there were times they definitely could have used it then. But yeah, like there, there's, there's hits and misses to Jeff Gordon. And a lot of the moves were relatively safe. Um, that like some of the trades he made were a little bit safe. Some of the prospects he went for were a little bit safe, but it seemed like they started figuring it out a little bit more towards the end. I would have been curious if he, you know, got to finish this out, how things would have looked. Um, you know, there are a lot of pieces he did put in place to help the Rangers get to where they are. I think the Rangers would have been a better team going into this year, no matter what. And it was the right time for a coaching change, or at least even just assistant coaches for them going into this year. And obviously then they went the toughness route and everything, you know, hit the fan. But, you know, there were positives and this team was positioned to to exceed expectations, you know, going into the season, no matter what they did. And the last two years they did as well. And he was still like patient and didn't buy, say, last deadline when maybe they could have felt like we should have done that. You know, we were close to the playoffs. They didn't. So there's there's a lot of, you know, interesting parts of it, but there's a willingness to tear it down from him. That was really important with the Rangers. Like he tore it down. He was very willing to do it and got rid of every piece that it felt like they should have. Um, but yeah, there were definitely some misses. Like the Henrik Lundqvist situation was one of them. Like they completely mishandled that and should have done things a lot differently. Um, so yeah, there's, there's pluses and minuses there, but the difference is here. Like he's not the general manager. So there is some checks and balances that he could have ideas and someone else will execute them or someone else will have ideas. But the, the positives are like he is willing to go for it and tear it down and do what he needs to do um, because he did try to half-ass it with a retool when they should have stepped back a little bit further than they did. Um, and it's, you know, they tried when they retooled to still sign right now players, think Kevin Chattenkirk and stuff, and it obviously didn't work out. Uh, buyouts were one of his bigger mistakes. Um, and, you know, some of the drafting was poor and some of it wasn't. So it's, it's a very mixed bag. Like it's, it's interesting. Like when you look at it and they got very, very, very lucky, but it's not all negative either. Um, so there, there are some positives. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very long winded. No, answer. no, it's good. I feel like people need the background, right? Cause I think a lot of people focus with Gordon on just the situation in Boston where he came in for a couple months as interim GM. And I think it was like drafted Bergeron and no, it might not have been Bergeron. I don't, Rask, I don't know if he was, was involved in. Yeah. He did the Rask trade. Signed yeah. Zdeno Chara. And then Shirelli took over and won a cup based on <laughs> essentially that core. And then destroyed everything. Yes. And traded away a ton of good, good players. I feel, I feel like people should have seen what happened in Edmonton coming when they look at Boston's trade of like elite players and what little return they got for them. Like, like the Blake Wheeler trade, I think stands out as one of them. The Sagan you know, trade. Sagan trade. Like, there, there were a, there was a lot of bad in Boston, and the fact that he got another job is mind-boggling. The fact that Jeff Gordon got another job is not mind-boggling in the slightest. He deserved another opportunity. I think he was fired. Um, the whole situation was a mess. Uh, yeah. the was he changed. fired, or did him and Davidson step down after the whole? Dolan tweeting out. I believe both were let go, but I could be mistaken because that was, (laughs) that was fucking crazy. All of it It was completely Um, wild. The the thing with that too, is I keep in mind, like there was interest in Chris Drury elsewhere. They had been dealing with that for a year or two, I think at least. So maybe there was some concern, but it, it, we, we know what fueled, a lot of their decisions 
And, you know, a lot of people look at it and be like, well, look at them now in the playoffs. So it's fine. But it's like you could find 50 flaws with this team without, you know, it's so easy to point them out. And a lot of them stem from their decisions this past summer. But yeah, like the the good thing with Gordon, like I did think he was going to get more for life. And I'm not going to lie. Like I did think he was going to get more um, there, but there should be some confidence in spotting player trends and knowing when to flip them. And like Ryan Spooner for Ryan Strom was an outstanding trade then. And it looks even better after the fact at the time of the trade though, it was exactly the, what they needed. Here's a player with, Bad scoring, good underlying numbers. Let's see what he can do in a new environment for a player that just isn't making it work there. And the mistake for him was, yes, he signed him to a contract. He signed Vladimir Mesnikov and Ryan Spooner to matching contracts that summer. The coaches did not use the Mesnikov. I don't understand what happened there. And Ryan Spooner fizzled out after scoring, but having crappy underlying numbers. So in a way you could have seen it coming, but he found an exit, you know, he made it work. And the Zabanajad trade was, outstanding then you know if you at the time he was not someone that people thought would be a first line center when he came to new york he had an opportunity as the 2c and he got signed to a very team-friendly contract that would have worked as a high-end second line center or you know maybe that low-end first line center and then the bandage kicked up his game like it worked out so you know he knows when to take certain risks but um i think he's improved with the draft mindset a lot from the traditional, safe, low upside, high character picks that they were going for. And then we're going, we're swinging for skill. And that was like the biggest change, I think. And the biggest, biggest positive that should help out Montreal. Yeah. And I feel like you can kind of see what Hughes and, and Gorton are trying to plan based on the return from all their trades. Like the, the big impact trades, like I think Kulak was a great trade just based on yep. the return. Second round picks. Fantastic for Brett Kulak. And I like to point out that it's the same return that Edmonton got for Jeff Petrie back in the day, which different market, of course, this year was very clearly a seller's market, but very funny at the same time. But you look at all the, the big trades that they made, Sherratt, Lekkanen, and Toffoli, it's all a high pros or high pick and a prospect in the 20 to 21 year range. So it looks to me like they're trying to build out their current prospect group. And like maybe like not all of them are expected to make it, right? But getting as many shots at it with these mid-tier prospects as possible so that they have a group of guys making the NHL in two to three years, and then those picks coming two to three years after that. So you have like a constant flow of players trying to make it into the NHL. And that's something that the last regime really struggled to do and player development is on like the tip of management's tongue constantly here right now they're building out a big player development department and i don't remember if i said it on the last show or if i even really should say it but i talked to someone who will remain nameless who was relaying a, a conversation with somebody who was in canadians management under bergevin and he asked them like how come your guys' player development is like worse than the NHL over the last 15 years or whatever. And the person responded, what player development? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They didn't have so, a plan. So player development is kind of a flaw and I don't know who to blame from New York. Um, that is the one thing that like should be talked about too. Like they were, Lisa Anderson wanted to leave. So that's one. Vitella Kraftsoft wants out, but that it seems like is Drury's problem full through and through. Um, 
there have been high end players that they are relying on that. It's, it's curious, like, did they invest enough in player development? Did they not? Is it problems that were stemming from Hartford because then they'd be more linked to Drury than Gordon? Like that was a flaw. I don't know how much of it's on Gordon, how much the handling of things, because you can look at some others and say like, well, it worked out for a player like just Arkin. Yeah. You know, Filipino, you could say like he didn't reach his potential and that's on coaches too. Um, Which Nevich reached it with another team. Well, he, you know, he reached it last year too. They were, he was that, great. Yeah. He was great last year. That was his breakout season. Um, and it's tough. You know, they get a player to his peak and then trade him elsewhere, which was, you know, would have answered the needs of so many things this year. Um, the thing too, to point out was with his coaches, coaching decisions, um, Elaine Vigneault, I never personally liked as a coach. I did not like him in Vancouver. I did not like the hiring in New York. And I didn't like a lot of his styles and decisions and a lot of things he did when it came to deployment, when it came to systems, when it came to everything. You know, I've never been so nitpicky about a coach in my life than I have Elaine Vigneault. So, yes, I'm biased here. I mean, um, Flyers fans would probably feel that on a yeah. very real level this year. Because here's a coach everyone was like, oh, yeah, he'll adjust his strategies. He's not adjusting them. This is who he is. You know, some coaches do step back. And look, John Tortorella is the perfect example of this. Everyone can point John Tortorella is not the coach that's going to adjust his strategies and change his line of thinking. Before he went to Columbus, he did completely. He started studying scoring chances and learning the game a little bit differently. So, you know, it's not to say coaches can't evolve, but... At the time of his hiring, you could make the call that he was the right coach. They needed a right now coach. Sure, sure, sure. When they started rebuilding, there was a willingness to go with the college coach without a ton of experience. Obviously, things didn't go perfectly. And David Quinn had a lot of flaws himself. But there was a willingness to go there. And I think that's important. Just like you can see the fact that they were willing to go with Marty St. Louis right now. Um, Minimal coaching experience brings the vibes. And this is a, you know, this is a player who knew every different role there was to be he knew what it was to be underrated because of his size he knew what it meant to work his ass off he knew what it meant to be an elite player so there's a lot to it you know with marty singley that makes him such a good fit like he's someone that probably the most excited i've been about a, a coaching hire because i think that there's so much potential and then the second he opened his mouth it was like oh my god everything you were hoping for he is you know concepts over strategies uh, over systems and making reads because he was the kind of player that did that it's not like he's you know so often we see coaches are they weren't these elite players you know they were fringe players or something you know sometimes we see the coaches that were elite players are specialty coaches or something like that marty st louis is a head coach and he was an elite player and he could do a little bit of everything you know he was hard to play against he could score he could be on the power play he could play in all situations he even shifted to center for a minute when the rangers were down to center when Derek stepan got hurt that's he was right. not the center. i remember that yeah so this was someone who was willing to try everything do everything to be as valuable as he could be to his team he is like the perfect coach for so many situations even though he doesn't have experience you can get someone who can help you with the x's and o's but the fact that he's not going to penalize you for making a read that you thought was the right play and he's you know encouraging players to go for it that's huge for their confidence that's great in development that's so many things that you look at the rangers rebuilding situation wasn't there the players were not encouraged to make reads they were not encouraged to play out of you know certain systems and in a lot of ways. And there was a fear that if you make that mistake, you're not going to be playing your next shift. And oftentimes if you did make a mistake, unless you were one of those veteran players, you were not playing your next shift. So like in theory, 
he meant well with that hiring. And in theory, there were a lot of reasons to like it. And it didn't work out the way I think most had anticipated. But like, it seems like there's a growth and, you know, a learning curve for that. And here's Marty St. Louis, who most general managers would not consider hiring, despite how good of a player he was. And despite how he knew a little bit of everything, because he didn't have that experience. And here he is coming in with new ideas that even if he's only a coach for a short time, he's bringing different ideas and pushing ideas that we should be embracing in hockey, like without question. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's a great hiring and I think the willingness to go for it is also encouraging. Yeah. I feel like I honestly, of course, nobody can listen to every single coach's press conference across the NHL all year, but from the opening press conference that Marty St. Louis did when he said that he would rather his players make a mistake while making a read than be afraid to make a read. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard a coach at the NHL level say anything remotely close to that. And it was just music to my ears from just a watching hockey standpoint and watching the way that the Canadians have been operating under Dominique Ducharme, which was very robotic. Do this, do that. This is what we do when the puck is here. It's so refreshing. And I think that anyone who's watching this team, who watched them this year, even last year in the playoffs, yes, things were going well for them. And that's entertaining because Carey Price was stopping everything, especially on the penalty kill, where I think going to the Stanley Cup finally had something like a 97.8% save percentage. But overall, it wasn't what we would call entertaining hockey. And the turnaround now, even when almost half the roster, it seemed, was still on the injured reserve, and they had one guy in Nick Suzuki playing center who probably would be a center on the top four line on any team. Like, Jake Evans I really like, but again, probably a fourth-line center who has a lot to prove. But they were running, like, Laurent Dauphin, who's an AHL veteran, on their second line when Marty St. Louis first took over, and they won, like, five straight. So it's like... the difference is so stark and i obviously next season you're not going to have everything be positive over 82 games no team really has that but just in terms of entertainment value and watching the kids excel it's been such a breath of fresh air yeah so this is such a tricky time when it comes to coaching because i think general managers can overthink it when it's for a rebuilding team like do we want someone that's an expert in development and we know someone that's proven working with young players and yada, yada, yada. Like, and there is, there's reason to have that. But on the other hand too, it's like, do you want someone who your players are going to want to run through a brick wall for? And you have that at Marty St. Louis. Do you have someone that's going to encourage your players? You can bring in assistants who specialize in development. You can fill your front office with those, you know, types of people. And hopefully they do it because that's something more teams should be, you know, putting more emphasis on and having different voices in there and different opinions from a data standpoint, from a hockey standpoint, there's so many things you can do, but it just is interesting. Like this is a coach who doesn't have that experience, but you can see the difference in quality of play. You can see the difference in attitude. So it looks like it's the right choice. Maybe they feel that they have to add a couple more assistants in the future and they can, you know, find coaches who specialize in certain things. Maybe they, bring in, you know, a high draft pick who is a great center, but needs help. So they can get him a skills coach. You can do all kinds of things, but your actual bench boss, your leader is Marty St. Louis. Like, I think you're going in the right direction. Yeah, it it's definitely a very positive thing. And Shane, I've probably kept you too long already. 
because we I try to keep it shorter, but I know you've got to, you got to walk your dogs and everything. But I have one last question for you, just because we've seen Montreal Canadiens fans speculate it during the regular season and looking forward to next year. And the fact that he's an unrestricted free agent, what do you see for PK Subban's future? I know it's been a rough ride for him as a devil and his career is very clearly, you know, not where everybody expected it to be at this point in time. Yeah. There's lots of people who want to bring him back. There's lots of people that don't. Where do you see him ending up next year? I'm not sure. I don't think it's going to be New Jersey. I do think that they value and respect him, but it did almost sound like they were saying they weren't going to bring him back when Tom Fitzgerald spoke about the situation. Um, so it he's not going to be going for money. He got his paycheck, you know, at this point in his career, given his level of play, that that has to be, you know, if he's not going for money, he could really like take his pick because there are teams that should want him. Would he want to go to a rebuilding team? I'm not sure. If it were Montreal, could the conversation be a little bit different? It's possible because he has a relationship with the city with so many things there. Like, you know, it's not this like cut and dry situation. It's different management. So I don't think he's someone that's bad to have. He's someone that it seems like is good in the room and, you know, young players appreciate. I think that you could see that in New Jersey as well. Um, As long as he's in the correct role, I think it's okay, which is understanding that he's going to be a third pair defenseman. Um, and obviously New Jersey's defense, there's so many things going wrong. So it's not like there's a lot going right, but there's obviously a lot that's gone wrong the last couple of years too. So it's obviously made his game look a little bit tougher than it is, but I'd be really intrigued to see where he goes because I think it would probably be to a team that looks like they're in the playoff mix, unless it's Montreal. They're the only team that I would like kind of put to the side and be like, if they want him back and he wants to go back, that should happen. But um I'm unsure. Hopefully, you know, like he lands somewhere good and is happy wherever he's playing and continues to be, you know, like a positive, you know, influence in hockey because they need more players that show their personality and, you know, are locker room favorites. Absolutely. I know like the, the impression that you get from people who don't like him up here is, you know, locker room distraction and that he's not focused on hockey because he has other things that he's, doing whether it's charities or the fact that he how dare you nicely i know i mean i don't know if you know this shana but the day that he announced his like nine million dollar fundraiser for the children's foster i don't know if it's nine million might be 10 million i don't yeah whatever it was a a big number which is a fundraising thing which a bunch of people attributed as a donation it's not quite a donation fundraiser. yeah he did contribute his own money to a certain amount but not that much anyway uh People frame that because the Canadians had not announced a captain yet after Brian Gianto left as him trying to donate money to a children's hospital to campaign for himself to be the captain of the Montreal Canadiens. That's how vicious some people treated the, that situation like PK Subban up here. So it's like any tiny hint of a rumor, people latch onto it as him being like this terrible person. That's just in it for PK Subban. Is there any impression in New Jersey that he is a distraction or bad in the room? I've heard only good things. Um, I, you know, I don't think that there's any of that because if that were the feeling, I imagine they would have been super willing to retain salary and make a deal happen and do everything that they needed to do to trade him, whether it was last year, this year, whatever it may be. This is a team that could be looking for assets for future assets. If they could have figured out a way to move him, if he was a problem, I don't see why they wouldn't do it. Um, but it's amazing to the people that have those opinions. Like, do you work your job and have zero personality and interest outside of it? It's the same thing. 
you know, Mika Zibanejad's DJ and people like, you should be focusing on your hockey. Like, is he allowed to have a good time? And he was, he was doing his thing. And then he came back into the season and was thriving. Like, you know, hockey is so important. We get it. It's their job. And it's such a commitment. Um, I forget who said it. Was it Sheldon Keith? Maybe he was like, we take so much time away from, you know, or, or maybe it was Kyle Dubitz. Like we take so much time away from like the players families because they're on the road all the time. They're practicing. This is such like, you know, a, a, the job is such a commitment. If they want to have interest outside of it, we support it fully. And like, that's how it should be. Yeah. So hopefully wherever PK Subban lands, there's that willingness to embrace what he's going to bring the programs he'll do the style he'll bring to the locker room. It does seem like that's appreciated. You see it get promoted all the time. I don't see the team saying let's collaborate on a Jersey design. If, if there were negative feelings about him, you know, why give him the easy, yes, it's a PR win for them, but it is for, you know, it, it looks good for him too being involved in that. So, you know, it, it doesn't seem like there are those issues there. And I think that they were obviously overblown before, but here's someone that players seem to like, and, you know, he has a big personality. So be it. Yeah. I feel like he would probably get along pretty well with kids like Cole Caulfield. It got that high energy, right? Yeah. Like, I feel I like understand. he'd support him so well, too. Yeah. And I understand from the perspective of like PK Subban as a guy who doesn't ever go down from 100 that that can like in a locker room. I'm sure it can get annoying. I've, I have no doubt of that. But there's a difference between that and being like an active bad person to have around. And I think and those like types of players, how often are they embraced in locker rooms and given second, third, fourth, fifth, 20th chances? Like, come on. Exactly. All right. Uh, we'll wrap it up there before we close it out, though, Shana, please tell everyone where they can find your work, because I know it's everywhere. <laughs> so you can find my work at The Athletic um, and you can find my work at Sportsnet twice a week with stories using SportLogic data. And you can find the Too Many Men podcast floating around. You'll see a bunch of clips poorly edited by me um, through throughout Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Hey Shay. There's three lies on the Hey and three lies on the Shay because super mature Twitter name. Absolutely. And you can find links to those things in the description of the show here and as a podcast as well. And in case you don't know, the Too Many Men podcast also features Allison Lucan and Sarah Siv, two absolute favorites of this network, this show and everyone else in hockey. So please go check that out and support Shayna because she's the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you on Saturday night for, oh my goodness, it's Canadians Leafs. <laughs> what will we talk about? Maybe game seven.